when we left Job, everything was bad. Uh, his wife, in her grief, had tempted him to curse God and die, to reject what he said he knew to be true about himself and about faith. Um, and Job had responded in faith. He had resisted that temptation. And so now he finds himself in his resistance all alone. A lot of good that does you. It's lonely in obedience sometimes. And in these times in the ancient world, all cities had a, a, a dump, a place where all the trash and the refuse went, and they would burn it. And so it was this constantly smoldering you know, mess. <laughs> it, it stank. The fresh trash would come in, be put on top of the old smoldering trash, and you'd deal with the refuse that way. And that is where you would find the leper colonies in the ancient world. The people who had been outcasts from society because of disease or ceremonial uncleanness, but usually some sort of persistent contagious disease that could not go away. And that is a very lonely place. Even, and I, we all know this from experience, you can be around other people and still be in a very lonely place. And this was a very lonely place. And that's why we find Job starting here in verse 11. What we've been left with is this image of Job who stands firm in his faith. And the result of that is solitude, is being left all alone. So who's got Job 2, 11 through 13? Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. So we're given for just a moment a little bit of hope that maybe Job won't be quite so alone. We're told of these three friends, and we're told just a little tiny bit about each of these friends, where they're from, and there's symbolism and importance in that. Those aren't just insignificant details. There's actually something that matters about what we're being told. So we're told that Eliphaz is a Temanite. Now, Teman is one of the most important towns of Edom, and Edom is a place in the east renowned for its wisdom. When you read in the Old Testament about Edom and about the Edomites and sort of what is, the, what is their reputation in the broader world, it's one of wisdom. And so we're told that Eliphaz comes from this place where we should infer a reputation of wisdom. And we're, we don't know as much about the next two friends' locations. We know a little bit. So Bildad the Shuite. Shua was one of Abraham's sons outside of, not, not Isaac's line, but the other one. 
So that's the line that was sent away to the east country. So now again, our minds are, okay, these are people from the east. What is the east known for in sort of biblical terms? Wisdom. So, okay, we've got two different people from two different places in the east known for wisdom who are friends of Job and coming to him. And then Zophar, same thing we assume. We don't know as much. Naamah is one of the daughter of Lamech's wives in Genesis 4. So it seems like a similar situation that these are some eastern folk. But the, the, what we know about them collectively is that they are representative of the world's wisdom. Ash in his book calls their cities traditions of wise counsel. And so when we're told about these three friends that are going to come, we're not just dealing with three loyal friends coming to someone in their distress. We're dealing with people who also symbolically represent the wisdom of the world. And I don't mean world in a bad way there. I just mean wisdom. Uh, because one of the questions of Job, the big question of Job, where is wisdom to be found? Job is all alone, in distress, and here come some friends. Maybe they will bring wisdom, and maybe that wisdom will bring comfort. That's the setup here of these friends coming. We also can infer pretty strongly that these friends are believers in the true God. Now, why do I say that? It seems like a strange thing to say in this context, but why do I think that these three friends are probably believers. There's nothing in these verses. I know you're going to look hard at these verses. There's nothing in it. It's the rest of the book of Job. I mean, over and over again, they refer to God and his, uh, as a creator and in lots of proper and correct biblical ways. That's right. They refer to God accurately. And they never say something like, hey, you should just curse God and die. Or they never say something like, why don't you give Baal a try? He might be nicer to you than Yahweh. It's what they don't say that suggests to us they are believers. There's some biblical truth that comes out of the mouths of these friends. Um, it's also, I think we need to emphasize that word for a moment, is that they're friends. It says in the text, the three friends came. And that is not a word that the Bible in general, or the Old Testament in specific, uses lightly. Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's the Old Testament use of friend. It's a contrast to companions. There are people you know. There are people who can talk to you. There are people that you interact with. There are people you encounter. These can be companions, but a friend sticks closer than a brother. And the word that the Old Testament uses to describe how two friends are bound together is the Hebrew word hesed. Anybody remember that word? Hesed is the word of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It's God's loyalty to his people. It is a covenantal connection that one side chooses to enter into with, it, with another, whereby they promise they are faithfulness. The Bible often translates it loving kindness because it's not an obligation. It's a choice to be connected and to be uh, loyal. That's the word that the Old Testament uses to describe what binds friends together. We also can tell that they're real friends because of what they did. If you, th this is not like an email blast went out from the church that said, hey, Brother Job's having a bad run. 
could somebody put together a meal train? This is the ancient world. This is, it took a long time for the information to get from where Job is to three different cities where these people are. Then the three friends in three different cities have to coordinate with one another. Hey, we should go see Job and help him out. And all of this takes place, and then they make the journey from wherever they are to wherever he is. What they do is not easy. And that's a sign that we're dealing with real friends here. They made the effort to coordinate and to bring comfort to Job. That doesn't just happen. So this whole setup, by setup I mean what we're reading in the text before we get to what happens next. This whole setup is to form a question in our minds for what happens next. And the question is, can the world's wisdom, even with the kindness and the loyalty of friends who are believers, can it bring comfort to a lonely sufferer? Are there answers in the, and I don't mean world's wisdom meaning like counter to Christian or believing wisdom. I mean God's wisdom is one level, and then everything people we can know is world's wisdom, what people can know, not world in the New Testament sense, world in the not God sense. Can that wisdom, what we can know, the answers we can provide, even by loving, loyal friends, can those answers provide comfort in times of significant distress? That's kind of the question. Okay, now Job's going to get his problem solved. His friends are going to come. They're in this with him. This is going to be good. Good things are going to happen. Uh, so then we get to the friend's response. <laughs> Not quite what we had hoped for. But they get off to a good start. So let's talk about that. And let's be sympathetic to the friends in their experience of what happens here with Job. Because what, what happens when they see Job? And what does the text what does the text say about their perception of it? They don't even recognize it. I mean they're undone by what they see. And we know what that means. We 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 know emotionally what that is to see someone who has gone through such great illness or such great trial or tragedy or is near the end of their life and we say i don't even recognize them you do literally know who it is they had to go find out where job was and somebody told them where job would be and they went and the person was where job would told them to be they know that it is job and they don't recognize him and they're undone by what they see He's disfigured by sores all over his body. He's in this state of abject mourning and grief. His robe is torn and his head is shaved. And suffering can make even the familiar strange. That kind of trauma can make someone unrecognizable in this emotional sense to us. And the friends start in a really good place. They enter into mourning with him which is the right place to start. They rend their robes too. Now, 
They don't shave their heads, which is just kind of funny. It makes you chuckle a little bit. They pour dust on their heads, which is an equivalent symbol. Dust to death. It's a symbol of, of death. It's fine. But they're not all in on the head shaving thing. <laughs> they, they can make it, they can fix the robe. Hair takes a long time to grow back, or maybe one of them you know, is afraid their hair's not going to grow back, and so we're not we're not going down that path. But they weep and they remain with them. And these are all really important things. They don't start with explanations. They don't start by pretending they have answers. They don't start with lectures about Romans 8.28. They start by entering into his morning. And that's a really big deal. We talk about the, the modern phrases we use, the ministry of presence, the idea of just being with someone is the place to start. And I'm going to keep emphasizing the place to start because we're going to see where Job's friends go wrong in just a minute here. But it absolutely is where we have to start. Silence, Derek Thomas says, silence is a good initial response to someone else's suffering. When you are entering into someone else's suffering, don't enter in with your words. Enter in with your presence, with your tears, with your grief. It, let them feel. We're dealing a lot with feelings when we're dealing with sorrow and grief. Let them feel that you believe this is real. <laughs> that their sorrow is a legitimate thing. Not something you simply stand apart from and in judgment over, but something that you're willing to enter into. Uh, Joseph Carroll wrote, let sorrow have its way for a while, and that will make way for comfort. If your goal is to bring comfort, start by entering in the sorrow and then work from there. Don't try to start somewhere else. So they initially did the right thing. But seven days of silence toward Job is not the right thing. This was their first error of the friends. Uh, the amount of time that they remain silent. And, and we can understand why. It's likely that they're overwhelmed by the greatness of his suffering. They didn't think it was going to be this bad. The, the news reports couldn't quite capture how bad things had gotten for Job, who is now bald-headed in the dust in a refuse pile, scraping sores off of his arms and legs with broken pottery. That's pretty bad. And so they're overwhelmed by the greatness of that suffering. But they're also silent, and we'll find this out when they do speak. They're also silent... Because in the back of their minds, they think nobody gets something like this unless they deserve it. Nobody experiences this unless there is a human reason that they caused. And so the things they could think to say, which they will say later, they don't say now. They just sit there in silence and say nothing. And this is an important part. Before we get to, in a couple of weeks, we'll critique what the friends say in each of their speeches. So there will be time for that. But first, I just want to critique the silence, the seven days of silence, because this is a, a modern trend in friendship and in the church is to commend this silence, this entering into somebody else's pain, which is good, because we don't want to just stand apart from it. But then, to say that's all you can or should do. 
All you should do is feel the feels with them. You shouldn't have words to add to this. Um, and that's not good because that's what the friends do here. And seven days later, Job is still drowning in sorrow. In fact, worse than he seems to have been before when we get to chapter three, which is just, I mean, it's the darkest chapter in the whole Bible. Chapter three is insane. And how did he get to chapter three? Well, what happens at the end of chapter two? His friends come and sit with him, enter into his sorrow, and say nothing. Nothing. And the way Job is recorded, it doesn't just say they didn't speak for seven days, does it? Look at what it says. They didn't speak to him for seven days. Now, maybe they didn't speak at all. Maybe they spoke, but not to him. But the point of putting that in the text is to emphasize that they were utterly silent toward him. Now, this is not a sign of mourning. This is a sign of having nothing good to say. <laughs> and so saying nothing at all. And reading what they say in the next few speeches, maybe that was better. But my point is silence cannot bring lasting comfort. Silence as a demonstration of sympathy can provide temporary relief. Your presence, not your words, are what indicate to people that they are not as utterly alone as they feel, that you are with them. And the, the silence is good for that, of demonstrating your presence. You're trying to enter into their feelings. This is one of the hardest things for, people talk about it like it's a men and women difference, but I don't see it that way. It really is just you're wired one way or the other, regardless of gender. You either naturally enter into people's feelings, that sympathy is what draws you toward the person, or you're more naturally drawn to making the logical connection of how we got here and the problem solving, and so you don't enter into those feelings. And comfort must begin with the entering in of the feelings. And I would describe it this way. If you think about the goal of comfort is to get a person from where they are, X, to where they should be, Y or where they would be healthier, happier, emotionally, spiritually. Comfort is getting them from this place of darkness to a place of healing. That's what comfort is. This journey, how do I get you from here to there, is then really important, right? How can you, the comforting friend, get them on that journey if you don't really know where they're starting from? When we walk up to people in their grief, those who are wired the way I'm wired, not the, the fix the problem, not the sympathize with the person wiring. If you're wired like me, you assume either you know where they are already or that where they are doesn't matter and all they need to think about is where they need to be. And so let me just keep telling you where you need to be. Just, just do this. Just do this. Just stop being sad. Stop it. Be happy. That's here. Be happy. But you can't convince them to go with you on this journey if they are completely certain that you have no idea where they're coming from. 
And so you start with the sympathy. You start with the entering into so that you, you, the feelings, the experience of the sufferer, reality as they perceive it. And again, this is so hard for, for people wired the way I am because we want to argue with how they perceive reality. Well, you would feel better if you just perceive reality differently. Maybe, but they're not going to listen to you if you are not understanding and sympathetic toward how they're perceiving reality and how they're feeling it. You've got to get into that with them. Why do they, how do they feel and why do they feel that way? Not arguing with their feelings, understanding their feelings. And do you know the worst way to understand how someone is feeling? By you talking. You talking does not provide understanding of how someone else is feeling. And so the being there in silence, people will talk. There are exceptions that prove the rule, I'm sure, where people need to be asked one probing question, or I'm not saying utter an absolute silence. But I am saying as someone who has sat at the foot of many a deathbed, and someone who has sat on many of the sofa of the grieving child or the grieving parent, if you just sit there, they will talk. 90-something percent of the time, they will talk. And when you ask questions, you're trying to guide the conversation into where you want it to be, which is a, 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 a generous thing you're trying to do that very often doesn't work. Let them talk where their talking needs to go. Because what you're trying to do is not solve a problem yet. You're trying to enter into a feeling and an experience so that you understand it. Job's friends did this pretty well. You get a good sense by their undoneness, by the tearing of the garments, the dust on the head, laying in the dirt. <laughs> you get a pretty good sense that they understand where Job is. They don't understand why he's there, which will come out when they talk later. And so they really don't understand how to get him out of it, so to speak. And that'll be a problem, but we'll, we'll get to that. Comfort, I think this is Ash who writes this. Um, <laughs> comfort must be articulate and active. It must include speech. He means lasting comfort. You can provide temporary relief with simply your presence. But as you see with Job, it actually becomes a little unsettling when all someone has to offer you is the ministry of presence because you're hoping they will bring you some answers, <laughs> some, some lasting comfort. And by their silence, what Job's friends are saying is, I got nothing for you. Wait, wait, but you're, you're some of my best friends. You made the journey all the way here. You're believers. You believe in God. You're wise men. You come from me. Yeah, we got nothing for you. This is bad. <laughs> That's not comforting. Again, uh, Christopher Ash writes, to comfort involves speaking to the mind and the heart of the sufferer in such a way as to change his or her mind and heart. And this is what I think the modern world and in some ways the modern church has so very wrong. 
is that, again, it's coming from a good place. It's coming from a place of don't just lecture me about my pain and where I ought to be. Understand my pain. That's a good place. That's a good correction for the church that would just try to stand arm's length and tell sick people to get well. That's bad. So the starting point is good. But if you just stop there with the ministry of presence, with the I don't have any answers, I'm not, I can't tell you the number of management strategy books I have right now that tell organizational leaders to tell their people, I don't have any answers for you. And all I can think is, then why are you in charge? I mean, seriously, why, why are you in charge? I'm looking for a leader who could lead. We need to have answers. God gives us answers. Uh, but we've got to understand the person and their feeling and their situation and their experience enough to know what answers to apply and how to apply those answers. Maybe in an alternate universe, there's a book like Job where his friends sit down and they sympathize with Job and they enter into his pain and they ask Job some questions and they find out that Job has been committing adultery and has an extra family on the side. And then, is there some wisdom that God has to help Job get out of this situation? Yes, there is. It's different than what is, needs to be applied in this situation where Job is not to blame at all. We have to listen. We have to understand. But we can't just say nothing. People think that it's wrong now to believe that someone needs to change. It's the most peculiar thing. Somebody can be unhappy and you're not supposed to want to help them change. It's very peculiar. Somebody can be trapped in sin and you're not supposed to want them to change. We need to love them. We need to be sympathetic. We need to enter into the pain. But we should want their mind and their heart to be changed so that they don't have to feel that way. Regardless of circumstances, nobody has to feel the way Job feels in chapter 3. Not for long. And Job's friends would have seen fit to leave him there forever. As long as you keep being stubborn, Job, you just deserve to feel this way. I'm not sure that's it. We can't change our loved ones' reality. We can't change their circumstances, usually. We're trying to change how they think and feel about it. We're trying to give them a godly, biblical perspective on what they're experiencing, which will have the result of changing their feelings. If you're not trying to make that change in someone, you're not actually comforting them. What are you doing? Again, don't forget everything I just said for the 10 minutes before this about where you have to start and the position it has to come from. It's kind of like what this has to begin with is genuine love for the other person. If what it starts with is a problem to be solved, I know how to fix that. I know how to fix you. If what it starts with is the problem, you'll approach it very mechanically all right, here's where you are. Here's the five steps you take. You get there, just do it. And if you won't do it, you're stubborn and I'm done with you. We laugh because we know that guy, been that guy. <laughs> what, we're, what we're wanting to start with is love for the person. I don't want you to have to be in this dark place. I can't change your circumstances. 
I see why you're in this dark place. Because I love you and I see your sorrow and your brokenness, I am sorrowful and broken. I get it. I'll talk more about the ways we don't get it later, but on some level, we get that our friend, our loved one, is broken. I want you to be here. Let me think how the wisdom of God can be applied in love to help you get from there to here. That's the approach. If we are trying, if we're trying to change nothing, we're not actually comforting. If we're trying to fix them without entering into their feelings, we're not actually comforted. We, we can't actually comfort them. A person cannot be comforted by someone they think does not understand them at all or someone who stands in judgment over their feelings. Just comfort is a feeling. I can't get the feeling that I am comforted. My heart is relieved when some jerk who doesn't love me treats me like a science project and tells me what to do in five steps. That doesn't get the outcome that either one of us is looking for. And again, what are we trying to change? If we just come in and we're trying to change how you're feeling, but we didn't start where you are, which means understanding where you are, which means listening, not speaking, and sometimes means listening to silence. Then how am I, how am I figuring out how to help? There is no one size fits all plan to dealing with people's grief. I'll talk more about that later, but there's no magic formula that works on everyone's grief, no matter what caused their grief, no matter what their backstory is, no matter what their current reality is. There's no such thing. And trying to apply it as if there is one is not helpful. It doesn't actually provide comfort, which is what we're supposed to do. That's what Job's friends were supposed to do. They were supposed to provide comfort. They came all this way, and they give him nothing. <laughs> and it's, they don't believe they can help him. Uh, Ash has some really powerful language here. He connects it to sort of the unrecognizable idea, the idea that they just couldn't even recognize him emotionally. And it says, he's been taken away into a different realm, a realm of suffering so deep they cannot reach him. Job is to them like a friend being sucked down by quicksand. They long to dry him up, but he is beyond their reach. He is as good as dead. And so that's how they treat him. Seven days of silence is treating him as if he is dead as if nothing can be done to change the way that he feels. Um, this is really important for the sufferer. When you're the one suffering, your reality may not be able to be changed. But the way you feel can be changed. And that's the one kernel of hope that you're supposed to hold on to in suffering. It's in Every single lament psalm, except one, which recognizes that there are some moments in life, they're very few and far between, but there are some moments in life where we can't even acknowledge that kernel of hope. But for the most part, every other lament psalm has the kernel of hope, which is God is faithful, therefore this feeling can change. It's really important for the comforter, the one who wants to provide comfort, you can't change the sufferer's reality. Your goal is to change their feeling. Your goal is to provide comfort. And stop feeling that way doesn't work. I don't know anyone who has ever responded to just stop feeling that way. Oh, 
Why didn't I think of that? This feeling I don't like, I'll just stop having it. That will change everything. No good. So let's pause there for a moment um, and talk about before Job speaks, where, where we are. Job's sil- uh, the friend's silence, Job's... Do you think Job allowed himself to have hope in that moment? I think every believer does in the back of their mind. We'll say out loud because we don't want to be disappointed and we'll believe with 98% of our brains there is nothing this person can do that can comfort me right now. My grief is too deep. My sorrow is too intense. But in the back of every believer's mind is this little tiny kernel of hope that they will, that there would be some comfort and that this would be where it comes. And so Job has that little, I think, totally outside the book. Job has this little tiny hope. His friends came from all this way. He's been alone on this pile for a long time, you guys. It's not like the conversation with his wife was five minutes ago. The conversation with his wife was probably five weeks ago. His friends can't coordinate all this communication and this travel and get to this place in an hour. He's been there for weeks. And then he's not alone. And they're here, and they're with him, and they enter into his grief, and they see how bad it is. And don't you think that for six-something days, Job laid there thinking, this is the moment when they will comfort me? And the comfort that was provided by their initial presence just starts to wear off. And he's all alone again, even though his three best friends are right there with him. And that is what gives way to chapter 3. What questions or thoughts do you have about the end of chapter 2 there? In the New Testament, when um, Paul is writing about the spiritual gifts, and one of them is the spirit gift of joy, mercy, joy, mercy, is this what he's talking about, would you say? Not specifically. It's included within it, but not specifically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's more meeting uh, practical needs and comforts. Yeah, but it's not say anything because there's part shame in it where they don't they don't almost almost want to be a little separate and that's why they don't say anything one of my commentaries says exactly that is that they see job how bad he is and and that creates the distance in what was a friendship is that they that like if god is bringing this level of smiting on someone we're gonna mourn over here <laughs> and, and grieve over there i don't know we're we're could wear off. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's probably not uh, one single reason. It's probably a combination of factors. But it's, um, it is clear that they have no answer for it. That's What the text wants us to be sure about is they have no answer for it. Seems like he'd just be pushed out deeper by that because he has hope with he, his friends coming. He is. Chapter 3 is... For showing up and not saying anything. Ch- chapter 3 makes Jonah look like a birthday party. I mean, seriously, Jonah's lament is nothing compared to what we're about to read. So, grief in itself, though, is meaningless. I mean, because truly no one. That's such a great point. It's here in my notes. Let's find it. No, because it's, it's a great point. So let me skip to it, because you're, you're absolutely right. Job's lament is, teaches us a lot of things about suffering. The nature of suffering itself. And one of the things is that though many experience suffering, everybody experiences suffering in some way, suffering is fundamentally lonely. 
And Job acknowledges that in his lament. He uses some plural verbs at some point to, to make it clear in the writing that he knows he's not the only person in the world who's ever suffered or that does only suffer. Lots of faithful have and do suffer. And yet, even when people are with you in sympathy, even when they do it all right, nobody can be with you in your grief. No one. Um, he says, every shared loss is experienced uniquely by each bereft person. And then he gives a very heart-wrenching example that think about it's true. When a child dies, the father alone knows what it is to be the father of this dead child. Only the mother enters the unique depths of loss as the mother of this son or this daughter. And you can paint broad categories. Oh, you know what it's like to lose a child. You don't know what it's like to be that mother who lost that child. And make all the generalities you can. It's not the same. It's not the same. People are not the same. There's so many divorces and things like that. Where, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sad because Two people, I'll mention this in the sermon, too, just two people can look at the same set of facts, both be correct, and yet be in completely different places. Um, yeah, it is really important to recognize the validity of someone feeling like they're suffering alone. Don't just out of hand dismiss the idea that they're alone. There are ways you can comfort them that they're not alone, you're there in compassion. The Lord is a comforter. But don't do that by just dismissing the thought that they're alone in their grief because there is a very real sense in which they are absolutely alone in their grief. No one has exactly that grief. And it's, it's hard. And it's hard for people experiencing the same occasion for grief to understand all the different people experiencing that grief in a different way. Um, never tell someone you understand completely how they feel. Don't ever say that. It seems like such a compassionate thing to say, but many of the things that we want to say that feel compassionate in our heads to a sufferer, when they come out, they're counterproductive, and that's one of them. I understand exactly how you feel. Most kind, gracious people, especially Christian people that you know, will pretend they're okay that you just said that. I know you lost a so-and-so too, right? But in the back of their head, every fiber of their being is screaming, you have no idea. It's my grief. Stop trying to compare our griefs. Grief is not a contest. Um, and whatever you see in common between the griefs, there are commonalities. That's not what the sufferer sees. The sufferer sees what's unique about their grief. So don't, don't try to talk them out of the uniqueness of their grief. Um, it seems sympathetic to compare. Oh, yeah, yeah, I lost my grandmother too. You just come across as clueless. You just come across as absolutely clueless. Doesn't the sufferer kind of want it to be unique to them anyway? It is unique. Like, I don't think we have to, I don't think this is how you meant it, but sometimes want can be a little bit of blame. Oh, you want to be special in your... It's insulting but, for somebody. But, but they're right. They're right. I'm the only person who experienced the traumatic event that I experienced from the perspective that I experienced it. 
And I'm not saying that like I should get a trophy or a birthday cake, but I am saying that in terms of don't, don't comfort me with the same paintbrush you use to comfort somebody else. Because my grief is different. Start by understanding it. And if you really want to understand it, yeah, enter into it with me. But enter in to understand why it feels different for me. Not so that you can diagram it on a, on a whiteboard. Of this is These are the eight commonalities of your grief through which we will now apply the formula. Of the, right. um, I, I have been I agree with that, and yet also, is there never a place where, like, I remember when, you know, our kids were little and I wasn't sleeping, and it was just horrible. And it was such a relief to me to find someone that had gone through the same thing um, and talking with them about their experience. Where does that fit in? Um. The generalization of you can get through this because others get through this has its place. The more specific something is, oh, you have breast cancer. My mom had breast cancer. It was really hard to go through such and such. She's in full remission. I'm excited to pray that for you and hope that you will have some hope that God can do that for you. Oh, babies don't let you sleep. That's really miserable. That is exhausting. How are you doing over there? <laughs> Pregnancy is the worst. <laughs> but it comes to an end. And it comes to a glorious end. And I've been there. And like that. Is there a distinction between grief and suffering? It's the distinction I was trying to make without being too fine. Um, <laughs> with It has its place without... It has its place in all circumstances. You see that place sooner and more obviously in suffering that frankly isn't that bad. In suffering that even the sufferer genuinely knows there's an end to. The part where you pretty much should never get to the point of making comparisons is with the types of grief that can't ever be circumstantially changed. It's different when your brother is dead than when my baby will eventually grow up. And again, we're not comparing griefs for the, so quit whining about not getting any sleep. <laughs> but in our approach to those griefs, we do have to recognize the ones that circumstances can never change. And so don't, don't act as though what should make me feel better is that one day my circumstances will look like yours when that either can't be true or the truth of that is so far out. We'll be together again in the Lord. Okay. I, I, I'm truly grateful and hopeful for that. But the next 50 years <laughs> don't look so easy to me. Right? Do you think considering that, like the difference in grief, like group sessions of like widows, groups, like, do you think those become more difficult because... They do. This came up uh, in a roundabout way on a podcast I was listening to this week where somebody had asked a good question about preaching the texts in the Bible that are about sexual assault. And they were criticizing, this person was 
gently rebuking or criticizing ministers who don't just preach those texts directly and say everything that could be said about those texts in a sermon. And while acknowledging human nature is to avoid those texts at all costs and to want nothing to do with them, and there are probably plenty of times where we sinfully avoided those texts or points in those texts that we shouldn't. Acknowledging all of that, the point that this minister was making in response was, the larger the group is and the more delicate the subject is, the more likely you are to do more harm than good. And so to talk to someone one-on-one -on -one about their grief, you can speak very directly to what you perceive, hopefully by the Holy Spirit, as being their struggle, their issue, where they need help, where the Lord is leading you to assist them. You bring a second person into the room and it gets a little harder because now you can't just speak to the one person without also filtering it through the lens of what's the other person going to hear? And are they going to hear something that's counterproductive? Are they going to hear something that's the opposite of their experience? It's going to cause... Now make that a family of eight or ten. Now make it a congregation of 50 or 150. Yeah, it gets a lot harder. The larger the group, the more generalized our comforting should be. The more specific should be reserved for the smaller, more direct individuals, couples, families, things like that, because that is absolutely the case. Uh, that's why in family counseling sessions, like extended family counseling sessions, can be helpful. Get everybody on the same page with the same set of information and the same grief playbook that we're going to be working from. If somebody says, this can never and will never feel any different and all of this is pointless, we can deal with that as a, as a big group. So we're all on the same page of why we would have any hope at all. But how to make that person feel like they personally could ever feel different, you don't do that in a group. Any other questions? All right, we're going to pause there so we get one week of relief before we have to dive into Job chapter 3.